recently saw a video that kind of a good metaphor of where we're at in our study of the book of Acts, especially this chapter we're at today. The video showed a man working hard to free a coyote that had been trapped uh, in this trap out in the woods. And you watch this video and this man who had all the best intentions of wanting to set this coyote free was being fought at every corner. First, the coyote would try to run and flee, but couldn't get away. And the closer that the man got to try to free the coyote from the cage, the more it tried to attack him. I think that's a Simple but good metaphor of where we're at in the book of Acts, if you've been with us in our study. Entrapped by sin, separated from God. And this isn't them, it's me. I tend to fight against the freedom that's available to me. I tend to want to flee from the very thing that is there to set me free. And that's what happens in humanity. Entrapped by sin, separated from God. We fight against the only hope of rescue. There's something fundamentally disruptive about the message of the gospel. There's something fundamentally disruptive about God's son coming and dying for us and rising again. And then the Holy Spirit coming and giving us this message of hope in Christ to change us and to give us hope for freedom from this system that we're in now, this brokenness. It disrupts my desires for life. It runs against the entrenched systems of the world. And the result is often fighting against the only rescue that's possible. And that's where we're at in the book of Acts. Our journey is brought through the, the, early, the early days of the church when the Holy Spirit came upon the believers after Christ ascended into heaven, after he gave them this mission to take the gospel to all the world. And this <clears throat> fledgling church was growing, getting to know one another, Building, building, building. People were were finding faith in Jesus Christ. And opposition was growing, though, because it was disruptive. And our last couple of weeks, we've looked at the life of ministry and and execution, martyrdom of Stephen, one of the Greek-speaking leaders in the church at Jerusalem. And this intense opposition from the religious leaders in Jerusalem is growing and growing and growing. And then this chapter, chapter 8, if you want to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, we're going to begin with a few transitional verses that give us some information on where we're going and where Luke, who's the author of this book, is taking us. So let's look at Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3 to get started. Saul was one of the witnesses and agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, And all the believers except the apostles were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Now the author here is making really, really sure that we understand how diabolical and how focused Saul was on destroying this movement of Christ followers. He wanted no trace of Jesus' ministry and of his work on this earth. He would spare no efforts to terrorize, disrupt, attack, imprison, and even take part in executing those who followed Jesus, as was with Stephen's death. Luke is no doubt setting his readers up for what we're going to find in chapter 9, when this man Saul encounters the living God and his life is changed forever. Saul later even affirmed this, 
the scope of violence that he that he inflicted on the church. First Corinthians chapter 15, nine is one example from his own words. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted the church. And in Galatians 1.13, he writes, you know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how violently I persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. And adding to the contrast of this opening paragraph, Luke, while this huge uh, persecution is going on and Saul who wants to destroy it, then there, there's parenthetically some devout men who risk everything to come even after Stephen was executed and take his body so that he could have a legitimate burial. So this cosmic battle for the redemption of the world is continuing. And until God restores all things to himself and sets up his kingdom and evil is destroyed, uh, we're still in this cosmic battle. Yes, the victory is ours in Christ, but the gospel is going forth and we're in this phase of, of, of cosmic history of God's redemptive story where he's drawing people to himself and using you and I, using the church to take the good news of Jesus Christ around the world. Acts chapter eight takes us to a significant place in this story. Let's look at verses four and five. But the believers were scattered, <clears throat> who were scattered, preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria where he told the people there about the Messiah. Now, this opposition had been brewing for some time and Stephen's stoning led to it boiling over. And so now it was kind of open season on followers of Jesus Christ, especially the Greek-speaking Hellenist believers like, like Stephen, like Philip, those who were deacons. Remember, the, that all started, the deacons were these men are not called deacons like we call them, but the, the servers who waited on the tables were for the Greek-speaking Hellenist widows who were not getting their portion. So it all started with this Hellenistic group, uh, Greek focus in the church. It's possible that the Aramaic-speaking Christians, like the apostles, still held enough to some of the Jewish customs and Jewish institutions that they avoided the harsh violence, but it was really open season on these that weren't even, weren't even following those, those uh, systems. Stephen's sermon especially crossed the line, called into question everything that the Jewish religion held dear. That Hellenistic vision of an unbounded God who wants to do all of his, take his redemption to all people was something that, that could not be tolerated, especially by the Zionists of the Diaspora in the Jewish synagogue, and they unleashed their fury on these radical Hellenists. Luke's word by, for example, of the, this Diaspora, this scattering, is a word for seed. So literally, what's happening here is the seed of God's church, the seed of the gospel, is being spread. And in one sense, this should not be a surprise to us. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, way at the beginning of our study, Jesus said to his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That was what Jesus' plan was for this church. It's interesting, there are some who have even suggested that that, that section in Acts 2 then when we find the 
the believers with close fellowship together, having community together, selling everything they have and, and com- combining it and, and gathering every day for prayer, breaking of bread and just this closeness. There are some that suggest that that kind of communal life might be more descriptive than prescriptive. And maybe that was part of the problem that Jesus said, I want you to go be my witnesses. And they said, no, let's just enjoy this. Let's enjoy this closeness. Now, everything in Acts 2 is that, that we want to draw out of that and make normative is found in the epistles. So I'm not saying, you know, breaking bread and getting together and praying is, is something we shouldn't do. I'm just saying it's been thought by people, even like Larry Osborne, who is an evangelical free church pastor in California at North Coast Church, that's saying maybe part of the problem was the church wanted to be comfortable instead of going immediately. Something to think about. The Samaritans, let's talk about them for a minute. They were despised people by the Jewish folks. Despised, looked at as hybrids, both in race and in religion. They weren't really Gentiles, but they weren't really Jewish. They were just kind of a mixed breed from the, from the Jewish uh, position. Very prejudiced against them. John summed it up in the situation by saying, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. It's significant to note that the dispersed spokespeople for the life and teaching of Jesus to leave Jerusalem to go to Samaria, this place where not fully Jews, not fully Gentiles, but kind of this mixed uh, religion and race, were not the religious professionals. It was not the apostles. Instead, it was the ordinary average people in the church, people like Philip, who were transformed by the work of Jesus Christ in their own life. And were sent out from the very beginning. It has not been theologically trained professional clergy that lead the charge of taking God's message of love and redemption to the world. It's not been. In fact, oftentimes it's the trained professional clergy that kind of get in the way and make it complicated. From the very beginning, this whole idea of the church was supposed to be about every one of us, every member outreach. We've been transformed by Jesus Christ, and everywhere we go, we share that message. Verses 4 and 5 are keys in supporting every member outreach. Just think of these people persecuted, running for their lives, taking everything that they have, going to their next place. Everything in me would say, I need to keep my mouth shut now. But where they went, they talked about the hope they'd found and the transformation that had happened in their life in Jesus Christ, in spite of the persecution. You know, this still happens today. If you go to the Joshua Project website, which tracks the the progress of the gospel being spread to people groups throughout the world, you will see this is still how it works. The global evangelical average growth rate is 2.6%. The global evangelical growth rate, 2.6%. The evangelical average growth rate in Iran today is 19.6%. The average rate around the world, 2.6. In Iran, it is 19.6. The Iranian government is among the most oppressive in the world. It's illegal to leave Islam Christians face the constant threat of imprisonment, harassment, martyrdom. 
and the church is growing at a rate of 19.6% there. That's not because trained religious clergy are going to seminary and are, are building these great big churches. It's because people who've been transformed by the gospel are telling other people and are showing it in the face of intense persecution. I encourage you to take some time today and this week to go to the Joshua Project website or the Voice of the Martyrs. Look at what's happening in places like Iran, how the church is growing in the face of persecution. And by the way, pray for our brothers and sisters there. Pray for them because their lives are in danger because of what we're doing here so freely. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, you've been called and you have everything you need to be a witness for Jesus Christ everywhere you go. It's that power of the everyday Christian when our faith is evident in our life and when we care for people who are hurting, when we come alongside the broken, when we come alongside the lonely and we share with them through our words, through our deeds, through our actions, through our attitudes, the hope that we have in Christ. Now let's look at verses six to eight. Crowds intently listened to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. There was great joy in that city. So Philip's personal, his public witness, his teaching was accompanied by miracles, casting out demons, physical healing, much like what we saw in the apostles earlier in Acts and much like what we saw in the ministry of Jesus. Miracles, signs, these supernatural encounters with demonic forces are accompanied by accompanied God's work throughout the Bible. And we, li we live in an era where we kind of downplay the supernatural because we don't understand it. But all throughout scripture and all throughout history and in other places that don't have our intellectual, highly cognitive way of viewing the world, it's still very, very much understood that there's a supernatural element, a supernatural realm that's going on. And in that cosmic realm, there are battles, there, there's fighting going on, there are struggles. We've always, if we properly understood miracles, we say they point to something different. They point to something greater. A few comments about these signs. First, signs and miracles and healings, which we believe can happen, still can happen, um, serve as a validation and a purpose of something. The miracle, the sign, the healing, the exorcism, that's not the thing. It's what it points to. It points to the power of Jesus. It points to God's sovereign control. It points to a God who created all of the system and who has the, the ability and can at any point intervene in it and do something different. We also need to acknowledge that there are parts of the world today where these experiences, signs, visions, healings, power, encounters are still going on. When we bring this up, we have to explain to people, we still actually believe in this. You go to some parts of the world, especially in the Muslim world, like, well, of course that's how God works because they still see uh, visions. They still have dreams. They still see miraculous movements of God. Now, is that possibly because there are pioneering areas and where there are pioneering areas like here in Samaria, like in some parts of the world today, that, that these signs and wonders accompany the gospel? Possibly. Is it possibly that they're just more open to that and they understand it? So it happens possibly, but we know there's a purpose. I encourage you to pick up a book called Miraculous Movements and, and look at, read through this book, Miraculous Movements. It chronicles the work of the Holy Spirit in the Islamic world today. 
And it is full of incredible power encounters and signs and wonders and healings and, and situations where God speaks to people through dreams, not contrary to God's word, but, but speaks to people in a supernatural way. And people are coming to Christ and the church is growing in some of these areas. Verse eight is very helpful because it, it kind of brings us down to say, it's not all of the wonderful things that Philip did. It was the message of the gospel that brought joy to people. It brought freedom to people. It didn't bring, it didn't bring more bondage. It didn't mean more restrictions. It didn't impinge upon their cultural norms. It, it brought freedom for them. And that gave them joy. And then the next verses unpack more about the people's response. Let's look starting with verse nine. A man named Simon had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. But now the people believed Philip's message of the good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And as a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went and was amazed by the signs and great miracles that Philip performed. Now this is at the same time one of the most encouraging and also one of the most perplexing scenes in the whole book of Acts. It's hard to read through this part of Acts chapter 8 and think, what really was happening there in, in a, few, a few circumstances? Simon was some kind of magician, dazzling people with his special abilities. Uh, the concept of magic or sorcery in biblical times wasn't quite as delineated as it is today. Uh, we think of a magician, an illusionist. We think of a, you know, some kind of a spiritist. We, we have different kind of divisions of them. In biblical times, it was less defined. Uh, magic was used. Magic, sorcery, it was a very broad term. Anything from, you know, Daniel in the Old Testament had some, some of this kind of uh, terms used for him. We have the, the magi in the Gospels who came to see Jesus were astrologers, and that's kind of under that umbrella. And then there are some just tricksters who are just trying to play games with people, sleight of hand kind of magicians. And then there are spiritual forces of evil kinds of magicians that happen. In our supernatural culture, we tend to explain away that part of the world. But the concept of magic in the Bible is everything from astrology, dreams, interpretation, conjuring spirits. And in a culture that embraces that supernatural worldview, that's very real and it's a way that, that was happening. So we don't know who Simon was for sure. We don't know the kind of magic he did just by the term sorcerer. But if you look at the context and how it plays out, it seems like he had some kind of, not more than illusionist kind of magic, but not quite the most diabolical, if you're following me. He boasted to be someone great, but it was really self-serving. He was kind of this traveling magician who was going through the area, making a name for himself, dazzling people with his mysterious power. We don't know much more than that from the text. But we'll get a little bit more about Simon in, in a few minutes. But as Philip's message penetrated the hearts of the Samaritan people, they started placing their faith in Jesus. They were, and then, and then all of a sudden, Simon was apparently saying, wow, my following is going down because 
there's this man who's come and preaching this about Jesus and, telling, and people are embracing the gospel. And then Simon started following and then he responded. And it seems like it, it seems like it's something short of a full embrace, but more than just a cognitive. It seems like something happened and Simon embraced the gospel and was baptized. And we can pause here a little bit and parenthetically, because this question comes up sometimes when we do baptisms. It's like, well, what does it, what's required of someone from the time they put their faith in Jesus Christ to be baptized? Because there are some churches that they have the baptismal tank full every Sunday morning, right? We know that. And if someone accepts Christ as their savior, even in a church service or something, we just, we practice baptism. There are some churches that do that. There are other churches that have classes you go to and, and, and papers you fill out to affirm and confirm your testimony of faith, and then you follow into baptism. The New Testament doesn't present a process to follow. I would say the New Testament points us to you need to believe. So someone places their faith in Jesus Christ, as we'll see um, next week in the next section, and then you're baptized. Now, there's nothing wrong with, like, for example, in our church, we have someone who wants to be baptized, have an, an interview with someone, talk about your faith. There's a, a questionnaire, which is not so much an investigative questionnaire. It's just more tell us about yourself and about your, your faith journey. Now, the argument could be made that's not required by the Scripture, and it's not. But it's helpful in many cases because sometimes people get saved and jump in a baptismal tank, and then they, but they don't understand what that is. But it's also possible, even after going through that interview and filling out, you still don't understand what it is. And I think there's argument could be made that for many of us, we don't really understand what it is till we're way into our Christian journey. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, now I'm beginning to understand what this was that God did in, in me. But I wanted to mention that to you because it comes up sometimes. It's like, why do we do baptism like we do it? It's not because scripture requires it, but it's because we want to, and I think maybe this text kind of helps us to see that, we want to at least talk to people and know, what's your faith story? So that when, we, when you go through that baptism, you're part of our community and you've shared that with us. Enough said about that. Acts chapter 8, let's go to verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not come upon any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid hands on the believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. If it wasn't confusing before, it's confusing now. So, okay, now where are we going with this? Remember that everything that's happening in the church here is new. Everything is new. This is kind of the first time that we're going through many of these things. The apostles in Jerusalem heard that Philip and others, I assume, went to Samaria, were sharing the gospel, were preaching the good news of Jesus, and people were getting saved and baptized. And so the apostles wanted to come. It doesn't sound like they wanted to come so much to scrutinize the Samaritan experience, but to validate it, to to validate it, that this, this Samaritan, this manifestation of the Holy, this manifestation of God's love and of faith and baptism in the church being planted in Samaria is just as valid as what's going on in Jerusalem. And to validate that in this instance, 
it seems like the Holy Spirit had not been given to these people. They had been saved somehow. They, they had embraced the gospel. But in order to validate and bring them in so that everyone would know that this is the valid church, just like Jerusalem church, the apostles came and they laid hands on these people and the Holy Spirit came upon them. Now we're confused at a higher level. We, okay, now I still... It, the rest of the New Testament doesn't see that, doesn't teach that as normative, but this was the first time the gospel had gone to someone, someplace other than Jerusalem, and these apostles wanted to validate that and to make sure that we understood that they are coming. Howard Marshall calls verse 16 perhaps the most extraordinary statement in the book of Acts. They'd been baptized in Jesus' name, but had not received the Holy Spirit. So I think it's best just to say this is an apostolic authentic authentication of what was going on in Samaria. I don't think we should draw any normative experiences from it, but rather see it in its place in the development of the New Testament church. But it is significant that this, was, this gospel is how the hostility between the Jewish Jews and Samaritans was, was melting away. Remember, Jews looked down on Samaritans. They were, they, were, they were kind of not really Jews, not really Gentiles. They had compromised the faith. And now what they're saying is in Christ, we're one. We're one, one church. Samaritan believers are on the same level as the Jerusalem believers. We can learn from that in our context. As we, because we in the, in the church in America and the church in the West, we can have an arrogance that we are the ones, we've got it. And other, other churches around the world, other movements around the world, yeah, it's good, but they're kind of tier two compared to us. And that's just not what the gospel's about. Just like the Samaritans were just as much the church as Jerusalem, when we're talking about the Christians in China or Peru or Kenya or Iran or Russia, God's doing that there. They are the church. There's, there's no tears in this. The Holy Spirit has been given to all of us. And now the story has another twist. Let's look at verse 18. When Simon, so remember Simon had embraced the gospel, had been baptized. Now when Simon saw the Spirit given, the apostles laid their hands on people. He offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter replied, may your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts, for I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon exclaimed that these terrible things you said won't happen to me. Simon, after embracing the gospel, after being baptized, after Holy Spirit's reception, reverted back to his old ways of living for self. I don't know about you, but I've done that. That's... That's very, very common among us as believers, isn't it? 
If, if only then that meant I don't have to struggle with these old ways of, of soothing my own soul, of trying to get ahead, of trying to embrace my own, make my own path in life. So Simon reverted back and he saw this incredible, because remember he was a magician. So of course he was tempted by this. And he's like, wow, if I could just get this, what do you do to sign up to give this away? How much money does it cost? And Peter unloads on him. And again, we don't know. We have to kind of infer what was going on here. So Peter obviously saw something in this man's life and said, you are literally the gall of bitterness. It's, it's metaphorical of a person whose idolatry and godlessness results in them just being so caught up in it that they don't see clearly. And they're just, they're just anxious to grab onto whatever they can. So deceptive. Simon asked Peter to pray for him. And the, the most frustrating, one of the most frustrating parts of this chapter, we don't know. We just don't know what happened. Did he pray for him? Did Simon repent? What happened? Um, there's a tradition that claims that Simon was the, was the founder of a heretical sect that grew into Gnosticism in the, the second century. Most scholars see that as kind of attributing things back to him. He, he apparently did have a following there. He already had a following there as a magician. And so whatever his experience was from this encounter with God, he had a continued following. And maybe that grew into a later form of Gnosticism. We just really don't know. Acts chapter 8, verse 25. Let's wrap up here, though. After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem and they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. Once the apostolic mission was fulfilled and the Samaritan church received the Holy Spirit, Peter and John stayed for a little while to proclaim the word of the Lord, presumably teaching the new converts. With all the puzzling twists in this chapter, it's easy to miss the real thrust. The real thrust is that God is, has been, is, and always will be ascending God. He's a God who wants us to go in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our communities, in our states, in our nations, in our world, and let people know of the transformation that's happened in our lives because of Jesus Christ. I spent most of this past week in Los Angeles with a meeting of mission leaders from the Evangelical Free Church of America and churches and, and reach global leaders and reach global is our mission sending agency as a denomination. So I spent most of this last week um, in California meeting with these leaders, exploring the terrain of the gospel, seeing what's happening around the world as the good news of Jesus Christ is going forth and sharing lessons about what can be what we're doing and how we can be more effective. I was encouraged, really encouraged to hear from people and to meet so many people who came up to me and said, you're at First Free in St. Louis, right? Yeah. And they talked to me about the legacy of global missions from this church whether it was Richard Schumacher working with Rick and Donna Burke coming to St. Louis for a short-term team to help Jubilee Church in North City, participating in our partnership with Russia. The role of this church was validated 
One of the speakers even mentioned one, one thing that's going on right now that we have, we have a Reach Global missionary interning with us right now to help her raise support. She was getting close to her support raising, needed a new place to go. She's part of our church now, helping her to get ready to go to be part of Reach Global in Athens, Greece. We have 25 or so supported gospel workers around the world, the United States and around the world, who we support as a church. We're forming new partnerships in Kenya, Peru. We're exploring a partnership with Greece. You're going to be hearing in the next few weeks about a um, crisis response trip to, to Kentucky to help with the flooding damage that happened there last year. Over and over again, we're trying to keep this legacy alive. I'm going to ask you to do some things to help with that. First, I'm going to ask you to go wherever you're at with the the love of Jesus Christ. Start right in your neighborhood. Start with the people that you work with. Start with the people you go to school with, those friends of yours, the people that you do life with. And then where does God want to take you? Well, if short-term teams are gonna be coming up soon, you'll be hearing about some of those. Is that something God wants you to do? Maybe God's tapping someone on the shoulder here that God wants to take you from here and move you somewhere. Maybe, maybe move you to someplace in a different community here in St. Louis to be a, a presence for the gospel. Maybe to move you across the world to be a presence of the gospel and to help the gospel go forth. And then you can also give. Uh, we have our outreach fund here any time you give, however you give, you can mark part of your gift for the outreach fund. And that goes to help us do local and global outreach. You can also support individual missionaries. We, we support 25, I said, but you can support them individually. And many of the missionaries that we support are still looking for more support and they need more supporters. And if you have dollars and God's leading you to add to the support base of our church and you want to support a missionary directly, just give me a call at the office and I can share with you some of those. But most importantly, I want you to pray. I want you to pray that God would use us and send us as a church to our Samaria, to the ends of the earth that God wants to take us with so that he can be glorified and other people can know the hope we have in Jesus. Will you pray with me? God, this was an exciting time in the early church, a time when your message was going forth a time when people were being persecuted, people were being killed because they claimed the name of Jesus. And out of that came a bold witness, a bold testimony of sharing the hope we have, they had in Jesus Christ. And sometimes we can get really comfortable here. We don't have a lot of persecution. Some of the things we say are irritants uh, pale in comparison to what our brothers and sisters in Iran are going through in other parts of the world. So I pray for those who are taking the gospel forth in places in the world right now where it costs them. Strengthen them, Lord. Protect them. Embolden their witness. Grow their faith. I pray that you would use us, as we sang earlier in this service, make us available to be used by you wherever you want to use us. Amen.